Good morning. My name is Gordon Carpenter. Hey, Jack. And I have the privilege this morning to bring you God's Word from Acts chapter 10. I am the youth director here, so that's why I said hey to one of my students. Sorry if that was weird for you. Uh, But it is my privilege this morning. The late, great R.C. Sproul called Acts chapter 10 one of the most important chapters in the entire New Testament. So we made a wise decision allowing me to get my feet wet as a youth pastor and preach it. (laughs) No, uh, but anytime I open the Bible and attempt to rightly divide the word of truth, as Paul instructs, uh, it is a humbling experience, and I'm grateful for this. So if you would, before we begin, I would love it if you bow your head with me to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you first and foremost of who you are and your holiness and your majesty, and we thank you that you condescended to us in in the form of your son. You sent your son to us to to save us from ourselves. God, as as many a man who uh, who has come before me, I'm unqualified in and of myself. So I ask now that as we spend a few minutes in your word, that your Holy Spirit fall on this place, soften hearts to hear your message, and and give me clarity of thought and speech as I attempt to communicate this. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, like I said, we are going to be in Acts chapter 10. We're continuing our sermon series here at Horizon through the book of Acts. And if we take a 30,000-foot view of Acts chapter 10, we know a couple things. We know that Luke is the author of Acts, and we know that Luke is the author of the gospel of Luke. And Luke concludes his gospel with this notion. He tells his disciples, Jesus in the gospel of Luke, tells his disciples before his ascension, you are going to proclaim the forgiveness of sins to the nations. Now, if you're a good Christian, whatever that means, and you know the Bible well, you hear this phrase, to the nations, and your mind should immediately fall back on the Abrahamic covenant, way back in Genesis, where God looks at Abraham, and he says, hey, Abram, I'm going to give you three things. One, a great nation, the people of Israel. Two, I'm going to give your great nation a land, the country of Israel. And the third promise, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through your seed. Now in Acts chapter 10, we've seen two of these promises come to fruition. God made Abraham's descendants a great nation, and God gave Abraham's descendants the land of Israel. But if we know our Old Testament story, Two of those promises, the first two, were ripped away from the people. The people of Israel were put into captivity, and they were ripped out of their land, so they were humbled as a nation, and they didn't own land anymore. So throughout redemptive history, they're waiting and waiting and waiting for this third promise to come to fruition where the nations will be blessed through Abraham's seed. Well, Luke continues the story in the book of Acts, the sequel to the Gospel of Luke, and he says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, 
the, the nations that you will be proclaiming this forgiveness to, you're going to start in Jerusalem, and this concentric circle makes its way out. You're going to go from Jerusalem to, to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And we pick up in the book of Acts on the cusp of that third concentric circle where the, the people of God will bring the good news to the nations and thereby complete the third promise to Abraham. However, there's one thing we have to note. Well, there's a couple things, I guess, but there's one thing we have to note as we look at a 30-foot view instead of a 30,000-foot view. For the entire history of God's people, the rule was if you're a Gentile, so you, me, it's uncouth to ask how many Hebrews we have in here, so I'm not going to do that. But if, uh, like me, you're a Gentile, uh, like a ginger, I guess Esau was a ginger. David was described as ruddy, so I, I think that means right. Okay, there's Jewish, I mean, there's ginger Hebrews. Anyway, if you're a Gentile like me, that's the whole point. Uh, for the entire history of God's people, the rule is you have to present yourself to God's people. Now, there are exceptions to this rule, like think Jonah going to the people of Nineveh where God commissions a prophet to go to a Gentile country and proclaim the good news, and then the people of Nineveh repent. But that's the exception, not the rule. So up until this point, the rule is you have to present yourself to God's people. You have to convert, follow all these ceremonial and ritualistic laws to become a Jew to gain that promise, to gain that covenant, to gain those blessings. Well, the rule is changing, and the trajectory of redemptive history in Acts chapter 10 shifts dramatically, and that is where we will be this morning. Now, I said that was a 30,000-foot view, so a 30-foot view of Acts chapter 10. We're going to be in verses 1 through 16, and there's three things we're going to look at. There's going to be two major characters we're going to see. There's going to be two major events that transpire. And then at the very end, we're going to talk about two major identities. So, without further ado, this trajectory shift happening here. Acts chapter 10, verse 1 says this. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. So the the first of our two main characters here, we get a few descriptors right at the beginning of chapter 10. We're told he's a centurion, and for my linguists and etymologists out there, uh, the word century can be found in centurion, so we know he was in charge of 100 men. He was a member of the Italian cohort, so he was a chosen captain to represent some of this army of Rome, and and together they made decisions, and together they commanded. So he was a bigwig in the Roman military first, and a note about that, if you're God's chosen people at this point in redemptive history, and you're an Israelite, you hate the Romans. More importantly, you hate 
the Roman military because they are tasked with controlling you as a Jew, keeping you in line, and preventing you from breaking off. So they are in charge of all the oppression of Israel, the Roman military, keeping them in line. So God's people hate the Romans, and they hate the Roman military. For all intents and purposes, this is going to be a theme throughout this message. Uh, Cornelius was seen by the people of God as unclean. Secondly, though, he's described as a devout man and a man who feared God, who gave alms generously and prayed continually. And that's a weird thing for us to read. Because remember, we're putting our minds in the audience of the day. And if you're a Roman overlord who the people of God hate, and in the next breath you're described as a devout, God-fearing man, that shouldn't gel, that shouldn't jive, that shouldn't mesh. However, what this means is Cornelius was a Gentile proselyte. He, he was a Roman who converted to Judaism. So he worshipped Yahweh, he followed all of the laws of the Old Testament, and he thought that he was making himself right before God. However, because he's Roman, because he's a military man, the people of God didn't accept him into the fold as much as they would another member of the Hebrew nation. So he was doing his best to present himself to the Hebrew people as one of them, but they're always keeping him at bay. Let's read a little bit further. In uh, verse 3, Luke continues in this story. About the ninth hour of the day, that's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, he, Cornelius, saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius... And he, Cornelius, stared at the angel in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And the angel said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Again, if we're reading this correctly, that's, that's something that shouldn't happen. Remember, the rule, not the exception, the rule is that God's people are the Jews, and God's people can send a memorial up. God's people can sacrifice, and that aroma is fragrant, fragrant to God. But Gentiles can't. So Cornelius, who's probably been kept at arm's length by the people of God, even though he's doing his best, is met by a messenger of God, an angel, and the angel says to Cornelius, hey, God has noticed you. You might be kept at bay in your circles, but, but God, the creator of all, has noticed you. And this is what the angel continued to say, the instruction that the angel continued to give to Cornelius. In verse 5, And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Remember, Cornelius is a a Roman proselyte to Judaism. He knows the Old Testament law. He follows a lot of the ceremonial laws in the Old Testament. So he knows when the angel says Peter is staying with a tanner, 
Cornelius is taken aback a little bit. Because a tanner is essentially a taxidermist who deals with dead animals. And if we know the Levitical law code and we know what is clean and unclean to God's people, as Cornelius did, that's a huge no-no. We don't touch dead animals. We don't go near these carcasses because that makes us unclean. And so Peter's staying with this guy and Cornelius is hearing this and he's saying in his head, that's a little weird. This isn't normal. I, I know this religion. I know these people. And this isn't something they would typically do. So okay, our first character is introduced, Cornelius. The first main event happens. An angel comes to him and, and tells him, hey, you're noticed by God. Now go get my man Peter and tell him to come to you because I'm going to change everything when that happens. Again, redemptive history for 2,000 odd years from Abraham to now. Gentiles, Romans, had to present themselves to the people of God and now the angel tells Cornelius, you go get Peter because Peter's going to come to you. Sorry, I keep hitting this. That must be annoying. Okay, we're going to pick up in verse 9 with our second main character and the second main event that happens in this text. The next day, as they, the people that Cornelius sent, were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. <clears throat> and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. So the next day, Peter is about 30 miles south on this coastal line. And about lunchtime, about noon, he goes up on the rooftop to pray. <clears throat> Rule of thumb, if you're super hungry, it's probably not a good time to pray because you're going to get distracted. So we see Peter fall into a, a trance. What this doesn't mean is that Peter took him, like, ate a mushroom and went on a trip or, or dropped acid and, and started hallucinating. No, no, no. This trance fallen on or cast on Peter is a divine action. Think uh, John on the island of Patmos seeing the vision, the apocalyptic vision of Revelation. Think Adam being put into a uh, divine sleep so that his rib could be removed and create Eve. This is a divine trance placed on Peter because something incredible is going to happen. Verse 11, in this trance, Peter saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And the voice continued, take that, vegans. Sorry, that was a joke. If that was offensive, I, I apologize. <laughs> so in this trance, Peter sees a sheet descending from heaven. Now, for most of my life, I read this and saw sheet and thought bedsheet. And for most of my life, as my dad can attest, I uh, was in a twin bed. So I had a small sheet, and I thought a small twin bed bedsheet descended from heaven, and in it were all these miniature animals. I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but like if you've seen Harry Potter, think um, the miniature dragons, and, and I thought like a miniature cow and a miniature uh, alligator, and like a little seagull was like squawking in this minute voice, and Peter's looking at it, and 
That's why he objects to eating it, because it, uh, it wouldn't be a good lunch. But no, here, the, the word sheet in Greek is also, when it's, it's translated to English, is, is ship's sail. So it's probably wrong to think bedsheet. It's probably right to think more like a giant ship's sail descending, and all kinds of animals are in this sheet, repre- or in this sail, representing both unclean and clean. There's that word again, unclean, clean, that theme. It's heavily implied that all kinds of animals were there. Now, uh, again, if we're good Christians and we know the Bible and we know what kosher means, you've heard that term, there were things that the people of God were not allowed to eat unclean. There were things that the people of God were allowed to eat clean. And these categories of clean or unclean and clean uh, permeated the entire Israelite way of life. And so there's some weird laws in the Old Testament that have to do with like bodily functions and you become unclean when certain things happen and you have to wait until you're clean again. If, if you're leprous, the Bible talks about leprosy or you have bodily discharges coming out, you, you become unclean for a time and you have to wait to join the people of God because you have to wait to be clean again because if you're unclean, you can't be with the clean because you make the clean unclean. It's hard to follow. I get that. But think uh, 2020, the year of, uh, that, we, that we don't talk about. Um, Natalie, here's a good example. If you have COVID, guess what? You're unclean. You're infected. And if I don't have it, I'm clean. I'm uninfected. So you have to stay away from me. But if if you come to me and you breathe on me gross and, and you touch me, maybe I get COVID and I become infected too. So her uncleanliness you're perfect, you're fine, you're not unclean. Her uncleanliness infects me. And so in this sheet, you have a co-mingling of unclean and clean, which makes everything unclean. And so God, through Jesus, uh, speaks to Peter and says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. There's just one problem. These animals are unclean. He, he, He can't do that. If he's a good Israelite, he can't do that. Now, uh, this is a part in, um, oh, we'll get to that. This is going to be a part in the message where I nerd out and uh, talk about Greek for a while. So if you, if you want to tune me out, that's fine. I'll bring you back in later, but please, please stay with me. Um, in Peter's response, we see something very interesting in the Greek language. But before we get to Peter's response in verse 14, I, I, I want to kind of recap and, and go through Peter's uh, track record when how he responds to Jesus. So Jesus tells him to do something. He gives him a command. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Uh, think back in the Gospel of Matthew when Jesus is foretelling his death and resurrection to his disciples. The Gospel writer says uh, Peter rebukes Jesus. Probably not smart. And says, Jesus, you're not going to die. There's no way. And then Jesus looks at Peter and, and he says, get behind me, Satan. Oh, for one, Peter. Think in the Gospel of John when Jesus is going to wash the disciples' feet. And Jesus gets to the apostle Peter and, and Peter's like, you're, you're not going to wash my feet. That's degrading. That's humiliating. You're not going to touch my feet. 
And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no share with me. You have no inheritance with me. You're not my disciple. Oh, for two, Peter. Finally, think in the Gospel of Mark when Jesus tells his disciples, hey, tonight I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be tried, I'm going to be convicted, and I'm going to be crucified. All of you are going to abandon me, by the way. Peter says, I'm not going to abandon you. If I have to die, I'm not going to abandon you. So I'm going to go to death with you, Jesus. Swing and a miss. Because by the end of the night, we know Peter does deny Jesus three times and actually invokes a curse on himself. I don't know this man. So by all accounts, Peter has struck out. I did play soccer in college, not baseball, but my two baseball guys right here, three strikes you're out. We know this, I think. So the fourth time that I'm at least mentioning, Jesus says something to Peter and gives Peter a command. We're going to look now at Peter's response, and I said this is going to get nerdy, so please bear with me. Verse 14, Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Oh, for four. Rule of thumb, this is for free. If Jesus tells you to do something, do it. If Jesus tells you or gives you a truth, believe it. You can bank on Jesus' commands being the best for your life. You can bank on Jesus' promises being the best for your life. So learn from Peter's mistakes and just let's take God's word and obey it, okay? That's for free. In Peter's response, he says, by no means, Lord. Now, in the beginning, I said, when you hear nations at the end of the Gospel of Luke, you think back to the Abrahamic covenant. Here, if you hear by no means, maybe, if you're like me, you, you think immediately to Pauline authorship, to the book of Romans, when Paul is explaining the distinction between the law and the gospel. And, and Paul asks a rhetorical question, and he says, if Grace is so good, should we just go sin some more so that grace abounds? And then Paul's, Paul answers his own rhetorical question, by no means, in English. And then, and then later, Paul again says, if, if the law is how we are condemned, does that make the law evil? And again, Paul answers his own rhetorical question, by no means. So we might be tempted to think Peter is using the same phrase here that Paul uses. But he doesn't. In Romans and in other places, when Paul says, by no means, he uses a Greek word, me genoita, me genomai. Genomai in Greek is the to be verb, existence. Me is a prefix that, that says, it negates, it says no. So literally, Paul says, let it not exist. Your question is horrible. I don't even want it to exist. It's this ethereal objection that Paul gives. Peter doesn't do that. Peter uses a word, may damos. May, again, the prefix that says no. Damos, meaning anybody or somebody. And it's way more personal what Peter says. Let no one be, like, this is for, this is for no one. Jesus, you're telling me to kill and eat? No, no one should do that, ever. 
And this is only used twice in the entire New Testament. It's used here in Acts chapter 10, and it's used in Acts chapter 11 when Peter retells this story. Now, that's all well and good. Pat me on the back. I did a good job explaining it, I guess. But why is that significant? This is why. Luke is the writer of Acts. Now, stay with me. Luke is the writer of Acts. Luke is either a Hellenistic Jew, meaning he's an Israelite who speaks Greek, or he himself is a Greek. So if you speak Greek or you are Greek and you speak Greek, it stands to reason that you read Greek. It stands to reason that you write in Greek. So Luke knew the Old Testament in Greek, not Hebrew. It's called the Septuagint. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this exact phrase is used in Ezekiel chapter 4. It's used nowhere else in the New Testament, but it's used in Ezekiel chapter 4. Ezekiel answers to God in, in Greek, remember, demos, by no means, by no means, I have never from my youth eaten anything unclean or common. Remember Peter's objection, by no means I've never eaten anything unclean or common. And Ezekiel in chapter 4 says that same objection to God. Now what's happening in Ezekiel? This is important. What's happening in Ezekiel, the people of God are in captivity to Babylon. Babylon is their ruling militaristic overlords. In Peter's time, it's Rome. In Ezekiel's time, it's Babylon. God looks at Ezekiel and he says, hey, Ezekiel, to represent my people's humiliation, to represent my people's suffering, I want you to bake sour bread. Okay, that's, that's well and good. I think some of you might like sourdough. So like you're even thinking, hmm, that's not bad. But God tells Ezekiel, the fuel of the fire with which you will make this bread is human feces, human excrement. You're going to cook this bread on human excrement because you're going to show through a prophetic speech act the humiliation of my people. Now, if you've ever had Taco Bell, we know that human excrement is unclean. We can all agree on that. Like, you don't need to be an Old Testament scholar to understand this. But uh, safe to say, it's unclean. And it's making Ezekiel do something unclean to represent the disobedience and the humiliation of God's people under Babylon. Now, fast forward to God's people under Rome and God telling Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Luke invokes the same phrase because Peter's objection here is... I don't want to go back into the Babylonian captivity. I don't want this humiliation, Jesus. Don't make me do this. This is horrible. I have been clean my entire life. I've done it myself. I've never done anything to make my mouth, my, my body tainted through unclean food. And what you're asking me to do, Jesus, no. Nobody should have to do this. This is humiliating. In verse 15 and six, verses 15 and 16, Jesus rebukes Peter again. And no, he doesn't call him Satan. He rebukes him way more gently, but it's a, a rebuke all the same. Jesus answers Peter's objection. In verse 15, the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. 
This happened three times, and the thing was taken up into heaven. One quick aside about biblical numerology, numbers, some numbers in the Bible mean certain things. Uh, so the th- number three here, anytime you read the, the, the number three in the Bible, think perfection, harmony, completion, trinity. Jesus was died and buried for three days. At the transfiguration, three men came with Jesus. Completion, perfection. So Jesus is saying to Peter, what I'm responding to you, it's complete, it's perfect, it's harmonious. You can bank on it, Peter, because you're over four right now. So I'm telling you that what I'm saying is right. What is he saying? What I have made clean, do not call common. Now, now, again, in the Levitical law code, in the ceremonial laws of God's people, God said certain things are clean and certain things are unclean. So God gives these laws. So you might be tempted to think Peter's objection is righteous and holy. I want to obey your law, God. But this is why the trajectory of redemptive history, this is why I said the trajectory of redemptive history is shifted in this moment. Because God looks at Peter and he says, I have made this clean. It was once unclean and now it is clean. So don't object to it anymore, Peter. He said it three times, it's complete. Now, quickly, this is hard to swallow because we think of the immutability of God, the unchanging nature of God, and the law flows from God's nature, but we're talking about the moral law. Think Ten Commandments. The the ceremonial law is what's changing here. God's moral law, his law that flows from his character is not changing. What is changing is ritualistic purity rites. And God's saying, you don't have to follow these anymore because no longer are the people required to come to Israel and and attempt to purify themselves to be accepted. Now I'm sending my people out. First main character, Cornelius. First main event, Cornelius' vision. Second main character, Peter. Second main event, Peter's vision. And this morning, we're going to conclude with two main identities. Now, this might get a little uncomfortable, but that's okay. This morning, if, if you're here, if you're watching online, you, you basically have two choices. Now, there are more, but you have two choices in this text who you want to identify with. And maybe you don't want to, but who you find yourself, even against your will, maybe identifying with in this text. You're either Cornelius or you're Peter. You're either an ostracized, arm's-length person who's church-hopped their whole life and has never been let in and never been brought into the fold by the people of God, really. Never been brought into Christians and you've been hurt and broken and you don't find a place. Or you're Peter, which is where most of us probably find ourselves, myself included, so don't, I'm preaching it myself here, so don't think, oh, Gordon's just yelling at me. No, I'm yelling at myself. Most of us probably find ourselves as Peter here, where we think that because we are Christians and we go to church and we've purified ourselves, now we would never say this in our theology, but we live this in our practice. I'm a Christian, I'm a good person. 
And these, this, this other person, whatever this other category is, I'm going to hold at arm's length. I'm not going to let them in. Let me, tell you, let me tell you who you're not in this text. You're not Jesus. You're not the voice calling out to Peter. You're not giving a good and righteous command. Uh, rule of thumb, this is also for free. If you read a text in the Bible and there is a hero who is a type or a representative of Christ, or you're reading a, a passage in the New Testament and it is Christ, you're not supposed to identify with the hero. Okay? If you do, you might, you might have narcissistic personality disorder. I'm just telling you. Like, in the story of David and Goliath, you're not David. You're not going to go slay your giants. I'm sorry. You're not going to do it. You and me are the scared Israelites in that story, cowering behind a bush, waiting for a Savior to come in and save us. And the, the giant in that story, Goliath, is not the promotion at work, okay? It's, it's sin in your life. Sorry. So in this story, you're either Cornelius or you're Peter. Now, if, if you're here and, and this morning you're online and, and you're saying, Gordon, I don't, I don't know what you mean. Like, I don't, I don't think I other people. And I, I am connected to a local church, and I, I do feel like I'm brought in. Like, I, I do feel like I try my best to, to bring people in and, and to be a good person and, and represent Christ well. well. Well, great. That's fine. Maybe I'm not speaking to you, and your progressive sanctification has moved far past mine. But if this morning you feel like Cornelius and you've church hopped and you've tried different denominations and you've tried different churches in denominations, but for whatever reason you've always felt othered, maybe it's a racial thing, a socioeconomic thing, a gender thing, for, for Christians everywhere, please let me apologize. Because this othering, this holding at arm's length is antithetical to the gospel. Now, if it happened at another church, I can't do anything for you. I don't work for that church. If it happened here at Horizon, let me, like Peter, say, may Damos, may that not be an accusation against anyone here at Horizon. But if it is, I'm sorry, seek out leadership and tell them that issue because that's antithetical to the gospel. And if we at Horizon are guilty of holding you at arm's length and not letting you come into the fold, I'm sorry. Secondly, if you identify with Peter here and you're squirming in your pew a little, or your chair, we don't have pews. That'd be doubly uncomfortable because you'd be in an uncomfortable seat and I'm saying things you don't like hearing in your comfortable chairs. If you identify with Peter this morning and in your heart right now, the Holy Spirit is putting someone in your mind that you've othered and you've held at arm's length and you've said, I don't want to invite them to church because X, Y, or Z. They might not like the worship. They might not like the preaching. They might not find anyone that looks like them. They, they might be offended by what they hear. Guess what? The gospel is offensive. That gay couple you know at work. Gordon, I don't want the humiliation of being associated with them, like Peter. That family that's your neighbor that is a different culture and you're kind of weirded out. I don't know how to interact with it. I don't even want, I'll, I'll wave. I don't want to be racist. I'll, I'll smile at them, but I'm not going to invite them in. You know what Jesus calls you? I'm not calling you this. Jesus is. I'm not calling myself this. Jesus is calling me this. 
a whitewashed tomb where our insides are filthy and rotting with repugnant hypocrisy of the, re the rejection of Christianity by the culture at large because they're a bunch of hypocrites that are, they say they're perfect, but they sin just like me, but they judge me for my sin and they never judge themselves. Jesus calls you a whitewashed tomb. Jesus calls me a whitewashed tomb when I'm guilty of that. My insides are rotting, but on the outside, I'm this pure and holy and good-looking not that I'm particularly good looking, I'm not saying that, but like my, my outward appearance, I'm, I'm letting off that I have everything together. But you're other, so I don't want to let you in. Now, again, if, if you don't, if you're not guilty and you're, you're thinking in your mind, I'm not guilty of othering people, that's great. I praise God, I'll praise God with you. But in our culture, we're inculcated with otherness. If you're a conservative, you hate those bleeding heart liberals. If you're a liberal, you hate those old and cold and, and materialistic Republicans who only care about money and they don't care about people. We, we don't want to let another culture in because it might change the way we have to think about certain things in the church. Now, quickly, what I'm not saying is to go out and, and get your token homosexual friend and bring them in. I'm not saying go find your token other culture friend, multicultural friend, whatever, and bring them in. Because if we're accused of tokenism, may Damos, may that never be. May no one here at Horizon be accused of that. And I get all the arguments for homogeneity and, oh, like-minded people. That's, I, I get that. I, I do. I promise you I know those statistics too. You know what's not going to be a homogenous place? Heaven. Don't for one second fall into temptation and think that Horizon Church is going to be represented together in heaven and all of our middle and upper middle class socioeconomic and white people are going to be in one pocket of heaven and we're going to be proclaiming things together with, with us and then another church of a different culture and another church that looks differently than us in a different denomination is going to be over here. There's not going to be sections in heaven where one accord, all of the people of God, every tribe, every tongue, every nation is going to proclaim him, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, together. And if you're not actively participating that, in that today at Horizon, in your life, in your personal life, you're being antithetical to the gospel. Oh, Gordon's yelling at me. No, I'm yelling at myself because I'm guilty of this too. I love my friends who look like me, think like me, dress like me, and, and have ideologies like me. I love them. It's easy to talk to them. It's hard to talk to people who disagree with me. It's hard to talk to people that look differently than me. It's hard to talk to people who have different theological backgrounds even. But this is what we're called to. I didn't even say this, but the title of this sermon is Much Ado About Everything because I'm going to make much ado about how this message in Acts chapter 10 changed everything. We're no longer the Gentiles, whatever other category that is, felt otherized by the people of God. The people of God were tasked to go and get those people. So Horizon Church, this morning, what are we tasked with? Well, first of all, if you are identifying with Cornelius and you, you, you've church hopped and you've been hurt because you think you're doing everything you can to be acceptable before the, the people of God and you think the people of God are othering you, 
I hope you hear me now because as the angel came to Cornelius and said to Cornelius, hey, your alms and your prayers have, have come to me and what I am thinking about you is what's, what matters. Please hear me now if you found yourself otherized by, by any Christian church. Please know that it is not what fallen and flawed Christians think of you, make of you. It's what God the Father sees when he looks at you. And like Scott said earlier, he sees us through the lens of Jesus Christ. So you are accepted. You are pure. You're no longer broken. So repent of your disbelief in the gospel and believe the gospel. And guess what? If you find yourself identifying with Peter, that same advice can be given for you. Repent and believe the gospel. This gospel is proclaimed to the nations. And now the only two categories that matter are not red or blue, are not elephant or donkey, are not male or female, are not American and everyone else, are not Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for all are one in Christ. There's only two categories that will matter when it comes to heaven. And that's enough homogeneity for God. Are you an unrepentant sinner walking and gallivanting your way to an eternity in hell? Or are you a repented sinner who is claiming the blood of Jesus Christ over you? And if you find yourself in the latter camp, together, let us lock arms Walk forward for the gospel, constantly repenting and constantly focusing our mind back on the cross. And like Luke tells in the conclusion of his gospel, may we at Horizon Church be known as a church that proclaims the forgiveness of sins to the nations.